Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 22, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing, untying that colt? They answered, as Jesus told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. This is God's word. Is anything for real these days? That's the title of a recent article in the USA Today lamenting the misrepresentations and the deceptions of our cultural celebrities and superstars. The article goes on to lament about uh, Lance's lies. World-famous cyclist finally admits to the very thing he'd been vehemently denying. And then there's Manti's imaginary friend, our Notre Dame linebacker, who told Katie Couric the tale of his dead girlfriend hoax. He said, I quote, I wasn't as forthcoming, but I didn't lie. Huh? Well, except that he did when he said in the same interview, well, the biggest lie I'm sorry for is the lie I told my dad. Huh? And then, and I know this may be breaking news for us all, 
not all of reality TV is real. (laughs) Can you believe it? In December, uh, Dave Hester, who's a paid star bidder on A&E's hit show Storage Wars, Storage Wars, He sued the network and the producers, claiming he was fired in retaliation for tattling about the show's deceptive practices. Among Hester's claims are that the show would salt the storage lockers with valuable or unusual items for dramatic effect. And producers manipulated the outcome of certain auctions by paying for storage units on behalf of the weaker cast members. The suit charges nearly every aspect of the series is faked. No wonder the article notes from sports heroes to superstar performers to reality TV, we're deluged by deception. And then there are those preacher types. My goodness, what are we going to say about them? Nothing. Let's let Jesus do the talking, okay? Let's let Jesus do the talking because he does so in Mark 11 concerning the issue of appearing to be someone you're not. In Mark 11, Jesus finds Israel's national treasure and the national treasure's pastoral leaders appearing to be something that they're not. And that's really what we're dealing with when we consider the, the triumphal entry of Christ. It's, it's easy to think about the triumphal entry as this really cheerful springtime event where people were just happily waving palm branches and rallying around Jesus. And don't get me wrong, there's plenty of celebration going on here as we shall see in these verses. Uh, but but it, it seems like we kind of read this with the lens of Jesus as this sort of celebrity Good guy from rural Galilee coming to urban Jerusalem and just isn't that nice and, 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 and folksy? Well, no, not really. It really wasn't so folksy. In fact, the triumphal entry was highly confrontational. And what Jesus did on that Palm Sunday set in motion what would lead to his crucifixion only days later. And so as we consider Mark chapter 11... Um, I want us to consider three questions. This is a what, so what, now what message. I want us to to unpack these these verses as we consider the the what question. What's going on here? Why do we read about Jesus going to the temple at the end of the day? And then then what, what is this deal about cursing of this fig tree? Where does that come from? What's that about? That's the what. And then the so what. What's the significance What's the importance here? How how does what we learn in Mark's world, how does it apply to our world today? What's the lesson for us? That's the so what. And then there's the now what. What's the action point? What, so what, now what? That's where we're going today. Well, the story begins actually before Mark 11. It begins in Mark 10, 46 in the city of Jericho. Jesus went from Jericho to Jerusalem. Jericho, Jericho to Jerusalem 
is 15-ish miles, okay? So it's, you know, it's a little bit beyond Muhammad, a little bit before you get to Rantoul, about 15-ish miles. But Jericho is 853 feet below sea level. Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level. And you've got 15 miles between those two places, which means you're ascending, you know, between, say, here and just beyond Muhammad, 3,300 feet. I mean, that is one big calorie-burning body step class. That's what that is. Just before they get to Jerusalem, they get to the villages. It's kind of a twin villages of Bethphage and Bethany. Bethphage means house of figs. Interesting. So there's this theme of figs that we see in Mark 11. That's important. And when they get there, Jesus sends a few of his disciples ahead of him to secure his transportation. Now, this is significant because Jesus has always walked, but this time he's going to ride, and that's important. Something significant is being communicated here by Jesus' ride into Jerusalem. And did you notice in these verses how detailed the securing of the cult was? My goodness, about seven verses just describe in detail. I mean, think about it. Think of it this way. When Mark describes the crucifixion of Christ, here's how he says it. And they crucified him. Here, it is highly detailed. Go to this village. Inside the gate, you're going to find a cult that's tied. No one has ever written. Take it. If anybody asks you about it, I want you to say this. And so, you know, these disciples do this. They go. They go into the village and just inside, there's the cult, just like Jesus said. And then they start untying it and they start taking it. And someone says, hey, what are you guys doing? Hey, but the Lord has need of it. Oh, oh, okay. I mean, just, you know, highly detailed. And by the way, don't miss the irony here. Remember in the previous chapter at the request of James and John, you know, Lord, we want you to give us whatever we ask. Well, what do you want? You know, we want to sit at your right and at your left. And what? I mean, this, this, this quest to try to be first and who is the greatest and everything, don't miss the irony here. The disciples who had been caught in the act of arguing about who was going to be the greatest, here they learn what it means to be a servant of Christ. Jesus says, go fetch my donkey. You want to serve Christ? Be his donkey fetcher, all right? Mark eleven two 2 speaks of that donkey, that colt which no one has ever ridden. What's that about? Well, the point is that when the king mounted a beast of burden, such as a colt, it, it's a dedicated, it is a sacred beast. It's used only for the king. Listen, the president's limousine, you know, what do they call that? The beast. It ain't a used car. Right? It's brand spanking new because it's for the president, you see. A colt which no one has ever ridden. That's royal talk here. Mark 11.3. If anybody questions you, say, the Lord has need of it. What's that? That is what we call the language of royal levy. You see... We, know, we have this thing in our culture called property rights. That didn't exist back then. 
as far as kings were concerned. They had the sovereign right to commandeer at will any beast of burden. So do you see what's going on here? Everything about the triumphal entry was deliberately planned to communicate the royal arrival of Israel's long-awaited Messiah. So, so even the very idea of riding a donkey or a colt, that's royal. That goes back to 1 Kings chapter 1. Remember when David declared his son Solomon king? What did he do? Get on that colt and ride around. That was a clear signal. Here is the new king. Furthermore, the image of garments being thrown on the colt and on the road. Well, that goes back to 2 Kings chapter 9 verse 13. When Jehu was anointed king over Israel. And then we hear the shouting of the crowd, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, that's from Psalm 118, which is a psalm calling on God to deliver his people from their enemies. Oh, Lord, save us. That's what Hosanna means. And then the act of entering Jerusalem there on that cult. This is a graphic reenactment of a messianic prophecy in Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we're beginning to see what kind of king Jesus is. Verse 10, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's what kind of king he is. He's a king of peace. This, this, this has kingship written all over it. Jesus accepts the label son of David. He commandeers the animal. He gets the red carpet treatment by sitting on and riding over the cloaks of these pilgrims from Galilee. These Galilean pilgrims were coming into the city to meet the Jerusalem uh, citizens and pilgrims coming out of the city and they converge and the crowd is large enough and, and the commotion is loud enough to put the city on alert that someone special is coming. Someone who'd recently brought a four-day-old dead man back to life. Israel's Messiah and King has come. It's wonderful. What's going to happen next? Nothing. The most anticlimactic thing occurred. Mark eleven eleven, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What? What? I mean, it's all, what, did Jesus take a wrong turn? And then they just kind of go back? Well, I mean, couldn't he have timed it a little earlier, you know? No, no. See, Jesus intentionally timed it that way. Why? Well, look at that phrase again in verse 11. And when he had looked around at everything. In other words, there's an inspection going on. Jesus is inspecting and evaluating the temple because that's what kings do. And he doesn't like what he sees. So he goes back to Bethany. 
And the next morning in verse 12, Jesus heads out with the disciples back into the city. He's hungry. Scripture says he sees a fig tree from a distance, right? It's leafy. It looks healthy. Jesus gets up to it. All he sees are leaves. There's no figs. Scripture says because it was not the season. And so he curses the fig tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Talks right to the tree. And, and, and this is interesting. This is an interesting point of detail. Mark is very quick to say, the disciples heard him say it. Verse 14, whoa. Eyewitness account there. And it's only when we get to the temple that we see the connection. You see, you see Mark chapter 11 sandwiches what happens at the temple and what happened at the tree. They are one and the same. The fig tree is a symbol for the temple. It looks alive and green and leafy, but it bears no fruit. And so we, this chapter, we go back and forth. We start with the temple, verses 1 through 11. Then we go to the tree, verses 12 to 14. Then we go back to the temple, verses 15 to 19. Then we go back to the tree, verses 20 and 26. And then we go and conclude at the temple, 27 to 33. Temple, tree, temple, tree, temple. They're one and the same. They look alive, they look leafy, but there's no fruit. And Jesus finds this out about the temple, you see. The court of the temple. Look, there's a lot of religious activity going on there, right? Jesus starts driving out money changers and and benches of those selling doves. What's that about? Well, it wasn't about the fact that they were selling things in the temple per se, no, that, I mean, that would happen. Why? Because, well, the Passover was the largest gathering of Israel, and if a family had to make a long trip, they simply waited until they got to the city in order to purchase the sacrifice. And, and if they were poor on the lowest level economically, that's why they bought doves. But in order to buy their sacrificial offering, they had to have the currency exchanged to temple currency. And there was a service charge for this. And guess who benefited Oh, Caiaphas and the high priest and the temple clerics. Oh, and then they had to buy the animal, and then there was this upcharge for that because of supply-demand, you know. Guess who benefited from that? Well, Caiaphas and the high priest and the temple clerics. And, and, oh, well, what if you happen to have brought your own offering with you? Well, guess who inspected it? Caiaphas and the high priest and the temple clerics. Oh, we can see that you brought this with you. I'm sorry, this offering doesn't qualify. So if you'll go to this line, you can get a pre-approved offering for this amount. Oh, and if you need to change the currency, we can do that for you for a fee. What a racket. Ironically, the Passover, a holy day designed to remind God's people of their liberation from Egyptian slavery, became an event where God's people were enslaved to the policies of the temple priests. And Jesus upends all this. The booths and the money changers. He says, this is my house. This is the king's house. It is to be a house of prayer. And you've corrupted it. Verse 17, he uses this phrase, den of robbers. Um, I found out that this phrase, when you really unpack it, the meaning is cave of revolutionaries cave of revolution he's talking about Caiaphas and the priests and the temple clerics under the guise of religion under the leafy cover of being a spiritual temple Jesus says you've turned this into a place to house revolutionaries 
who want to overthrow Rome. Oh, and here's another piece. All of this was taking place in the temple courts. Take a look at this illustration of Herod's temple. So there was the court of the Gentiles, which is what we can see in the upper left-hand corner of the screen. That's where the Gentiles came. And that's where all this was going on, the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was the one place where non-Hebrews could gather to worship and pray. The court of the Gentiles meant that God wanted to bring his grace to all people. The court of the Gentiles was a missionary court. So imagine being Gentile and imagine traveling great distances for the purpose of worship and prayer and you arrive only to discover that the place designated for you has been hijacked for revolutionary purposes. And Jesus is furious. He upends this. He momentarily causes a superdome-type power outage. He shorts the system. And for a brief period of time, the sacrificial system grinds to a halt. The game stops. There's no money changers because there's no money. And there's no money, that means there's no sacrifice. And there's no sacrifice, that means there's no temple. And there's no temple, well, then what's the point, you see? And that's when the chief priests begin to plan in earnest to kill him. They set out to kill him because they feared him. And why did they fear him? Look at verse 18. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Listen, Jesus wasn't crucified because he was weak. He was crucified because he was a threat. He was strong. And his enemies were not going to let Christ take away their little bread and butter machine. The temple had experienced major mission drift from being a meeting place between God and people to a money-making place to fund revolutionary activity against the Roman Empire. And that's not what kind of king Jesus is. And so they go back to Bethany. Verse 19. And the very next day, the very next morning, verse 20, the disciples see this craggly, bony, skeletal tree, the one that Jesus had cursed, rotted from its roots. Peter says, Peter, verse 21, Rabbi, the tree you cursed has withered. And the point is clear. The fate of the tree is the future of the temple. Christ did not come to reform the temple. He didn't come to clean it up. He didn't come to purify it. He came to pass judgment on it. And he came to start the temple demolition countdown clock. And it's really interesting when we compare Mark eleven twenty one to Mark chapter 13, verse 1. Just one page over in your church Bibles. Peter says what he says. Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. Mark eleven twenty one. 21. But then in Mark 13 verse 1 you know they're at the temple and then as Jesus was leaving the temple one of his disciples said to him look teacher what massive stones what magnificent buildings nothing nothing visually about the temple gave any clue as to its future destruction but as far as Christ was concerned the thing is coming down it's going to be leveled it will be destroyed. 
Says who? Says Israel's true king who came to rescue his people from hollow, fruitless religiosity. And this very king will in himself become the new meeting place. And that takes us to question number two. So what? What's the significance of it? Oh, well, the significance of it is that the tree and the temple are a lesson for today. The tree, and the, the tree and the temple were leafy and impressive at a distance, but up close, fruitless. You see, Jesus went to a place where people were doing religious-looking things, right? Jesus went to a place where there was plenty of spiritual activity, but no spiritual power, right? And Jesus went to a place of prayer, but nobody was actually praying, Jesus went to a place that was very busy, like most churches can be. Tasks, committees, noise, people coming and going, lots of motion, but zero life change. And it's a reminder, isn't it? It's a reminder that religious activity can occur without real heart change. Religious activity can choke off the passionate pursuit of Christ. It's a reminder for those who claim to be God's people but who bear no fruit for him. It's a reminder of what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Jesus wants more than churchy activity. He wants spirit-empowered life change that comes from people who have been delivered from darkness to light. If you're looking for a helpful uh, study guide through the Gospel of Mark, I'd recommend Tim Keller's book, King's Cross, The Story of the World and the Life of Jesus. Here's what Keller has to say about this very point in Mark 11. He writes, if you're an anxious or impatient person, is it clear to everybody around that you're overcoming that? Do you have the power to wait through Christ's delays? If you're an angry or unforgiving person, have you clearly begun to conquer anger? Are you learning to absorb the cost of forgiveness? If you're a fearful person, a self-hating person, or a self-important person, is it very clear to the people who know you best that your character is undergoing radical regeneration? Or are you just busy doing churchy religious activities? How many churches, how many seminaries, how many parachurch organizations or missionary organizations, oh, from a distance they look healthy, they look leafy, but up close upon inspection, there's no fruit, there's no life change. And, and, and here's the take home for us here at Windsor Church Family. I mean, there's a lot of ministry activity going on, which is a really which really is a blessing for a large church like ours. And it's happening because God has blessed this church of a thousand. He is, he has, he continues to. And the ministry activity that's going on, I firmly believe we're responding to what you know, we sense God is leading us in several important and critical ministry initiatives. I'm thinking about the Habitat for Humanity house that by God's grace and strength we'll be able to participate in later this year. I'm thinking about the missions trips that go on each year. Um, 
Later on this spring, uh, there's going to be a major motion picture that we're going to be encouraging you and uh, your friends to attend because it is associated with Celebrate Recovery. It's called Home Run. There's wonderful ministry going on, and, and there's a caution. The caution is this. Even ministry deeds can decay your soul if you're not bathed in prayer and absolute dependence on God. Speaking of trees, so there's this tree in Brazil. It's called the Brazilian walnut tree. Majestic size, strength. It's beautiful. This beautiful, large, majestic tree has one enemy. It's called the strangler fig. And what happens is a strangler fig seed lodges itself in kind of a crevice of this majestic tree, this Brazilian walnut tree, this, this, this strangler fig seed lodges itself and then it begins to grow and it grows very quickly and its roots begin to descend to the ground and as it grows, the vines of the fig squeeze and choke this walnut tree. The fig's grip on the tree becomes so great that the vine-encased tree slowly dies and over time, all that's left are twisting vines in the form of a tree. The tree itself has long since disintegrated. Only the vine structure in the shape of the tree remains. The inside is hollow and lifeless. Just like that temple. Hmm. So now what? That's our third question, isn't it? How do, you, how do we keep the vines of religious activity from choking a heart for God? How do we do that? How do we keep service, much needed service in the name of Christ, on behalf of Christ, for the kingdom of Christ? How do we keep such service from degenerating into spiritual busyness or, or, or busy religious activities that choke our soul? Well, here's what we can't do, okay? We cannot be at every ministry activity at the same time. You can't. You're going to have to choose. You're going to have to choose, okay? Because, because you're not omnipresent. You're not God. God is God. Here's what you can do. Pray. Remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 11? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Pray. This is what you can do. Prayer is how we keep our hearts passionate for Christ as we battle against fruitless spiritual busyness. And, And when I mean prayer, I mean we stop what we're doing, we push the pause button, and we go to God in prayer. You say, well, what? And say what? Well, we say the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a wonderful outline and structure for coming to God, beginning with our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We pray to God our Father. God allows us in Christ to call him Father. And we pray that his will is done. His will is done in our lives. His will is done in these ministry activities. His will is done in our family, in our marriages, in the church. 
And then we ask, God, give us. Give us today our daily bread. Give us what we need today, our sustenance. God, give me mercy today. Give me grace today. Give me sobriety today. Give me peace today. Your mercies are new every morning. God, give us. And then Jesus says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. God, release me from my indebtedness as I release those who have been indebted to me. Forgive me as I forgive others. And then God, protect me. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. God, we need your protection And then we conclude with the glory and the praise. Anything and everything that's done, we promise we will commit it to the glory of Christ. That's what I mean by prayer. And I am so pleased to say to you that when your elders meet on the second and fourth Tuesdays of the month, the first 45 minutes and sometimes even hour of our two-hour meeting, and we run a pretty disciplined meeting, because we have families and marriages. First 45 minutes to an hour is often spent in prayer for you, for God's will, for his protection, for his provision. I think we should follow their example, don't you? Prayer is the expression of trust and dependence. Jesus said so in verse 23. He says, have faith in God. Trust God. Lean on God. And and then, you know, his point is you don't need Herod's temple to believe in God. Even if the temple goes away, you can still worship. And it's going away. It's going away. Trust God. that's, That's what this is about when he says in verse 23 and following, I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes. He, what mountain? The mountain upon which the temple is built. The mountain which the Romans will level in AD 70, which Christ, risen and enthroned, will send to fulfill his prophecy. This fig tree is over. Even if the temple goes away though, Jesus says, you can still worship God because you don't need bricks and mortar. And if we don't begin with prayer and end with prayer and proceed with prayer, very quickly, church family, our life-changing community can degenerate into hollow religiosity. And what we don't want is for the king of the temple to ever say to us, you will never bear fruit again. Because the day he does, we're done. Well, Jesus goes back to the temple the very next day. Verse 27, remember? Temple, tree, temple, tree, temple. Uh, having turned over the tables, the chief priests and elders and teachers of the law were, had their feathers ruffled. They confront him. Who gave you the authority to do this? Verse 29, Jesus says, good question. That's a good question. Tell you what, let me ask you a question. John the Baptist, do you think he was from heaven or do you think he was from men? What do you think? Tell me. They huddle up. Well, you know, if we say from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, why didn't you believe him? If we say from men, well, let's not go there because the people believed him. I mean, what, you know, so they're, 
huddled broken. They said to Jesus, we don't know. We don't know. You don't know. You don't know. You're the chief priest. You're the spiritual leaders. And you don't know. Okay. Then I'm not going to answer your question either. We're done here. This conversation is O-V-E-R. Who talks like that? A king talks like that. That's who. The one who rode into the temple, the king, who inspected it, who condemned it, who set in motion a countdown to close it. He will shut it down as he will shut down any place where hollow religiosity goes on unrepented. He replaces it with his body. Jesus, who cursed the fig tree, would later become the curse. He would be cursed by hanging on a tree. That's what kind of king he is. He is the king who came to suffer and die for his people so that in him we might meet with God. And now, now, having died, been buried, resurrected, ascended, and enthroned, now he has sent his spirit, and through his Holy Spirit, he wants us to connect to the court of the Gentiles so that they might meet him through community with his people. For the apostle Paul says, for you are the body of Christ. And so the challenge, church family, is that as we proceed in prayer, we proceed in unity and oneness. We proceed in loving one another, serving one another, fetching donkeys for one another. We look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. We, as Paul says in Philippians 2, 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who made himself nothing. The one who rode into the temple. The king now calls on his body, his church, as his dwelling place. So that as people come into contact with this place, this community, Oh, what may be clear to them are these two unmistakable truths. These people, Windsor Road Christian Church, they have faith in God. And these people, Windsor Road Christian Church, they pray a lot. And that's a good thing. Amen? Let's stand for closing prayer. This is a place of prayer. And we want to be available to pray over you. So your elders, our staff will be up here and we invite you to come. Let us pray over you if you have needs, if we can remember you in prayer. And, and maybe there are encouragements that we can thank God for as well. But uh, this is a place of prayer. So let us pray over you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all that Jesus has done to gather us in community. We trust you, we need you, we lean on you. And we are gonna do that by your strength today. And tonight we will sleep like you're sovereign and then tomorrow morning we will get up and do it over again. And this walk will continue by faith, in prayer, through Jesus, for his glory. And God's people said, 
Amen. You're dismissed.